Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on a beautiful day in January. It's just been lovely. Now, I had an appointment midday today and I was told that we're expecting snow on Monday and Tuesday. Have you heard anything about that, Clark? Snow next week? Now, I know in the Midwest they're having quite a snowstorm. They're calling it a vortex. Um, But have you heard anything about snow here? Let me just be honest that I really despise it when we start up with this snow wish casting stuff that Mm -hmm. goes on. There is a possibility that we could have a little bit of snow like Sunday, Monday, and there's not even any guarantee it would stick. So this is just a remote speculation at this point. No, it's a it's a possibility, but as far as this being a done deal, absolutely not. Well, the person I uh, spoke with earlier today... Is she, a meteorologist? <laughs> she, she was quite worked up that we're going to have snow on Monday and Tuesday. That was what I got. I didn't bother following up on it because I thought, eh, probably... My, Probably my advice not would be, be not to worry. Not to worry too much. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it does snow, it's not going to be a big event. It'll be a lovely thing to see the snow fall and then it'll be over. The uh, the little bit that I heard is maybe if, if anything's stuck, maybe, you know, below a thousand feet, maybe it'd be a little bit of a bark mm-hmm. dust dusting. Yeah. No polar vortex. No. Okay. We're well, fine. Problem resolved. But that doesn't mean resolved. that we won't, you know, stack up traffic on all the major freeways. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to come in late both yeah. days just to make sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Sarah B. Smith. She is a daughter, and she um, writes a beautiful story about her mother who was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer, uh, Alzheimer's, rather. And she walks us through what that's like for she and her family. It's just a heartwarming and very difficult story and it reflects what so many families are facing and what we're being told is likely to be the case with increasing numbers into the future so we're going to talk with sarah b smith about that and in the five o'clock hour we'll talk with uh, jennifer hartline she lives in virginia she's a mother and she's also a columnist for the stream we're going to talk about um, virginia um, the terrible abortion law that Virginia was poised to pass. My understanding is it has since been tabled in committee, but the conversation that's taken place around this legislation is taking place in legislatures all around the country. So we'll talk with her about that um, in the five o'clock hour. First, to look at some of the developing news stories, despite criticism by some Democrats of the Medicare for All plan embraced by 2020 presidential hopeful Senator Kamala Harris, Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez insists the party is united. In an interview uh, with Brett Baer on Special Report, Perez said that there is no philosophical debate among Democrats that universal health care is necessary. However, he conceded there is uh, no consensus on how to achieve that goal. The Democratic primary We'll have a debate about how we get from 90 percent coverage to 100 percent coverage, Perez said. There are some who advocate for Medicare for all. There are some who will advocate for market based approach, end quote. Well, his comments came one day after Senator Harris, um, a Democrat out of California, turned heads at a town hall meeting by embracing a Medicare for all plan that would eliminate not only the private health insurance industry, but also hospital waiting times. And while freshman Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez threw her support behind 
behind Harris's plan. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, a longtime Democrat who is seriously considering running a, uh, for president as an independent, called the proposal unrealistic and un-American. Some critics have warned that the emergence of Harris and uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez shows that Democrats are shifting too far left and risk alienating moderates and independent voters, even Republicans who might uh, tend to vote Democrat uh, with uh, President Trump on the ballot. Some GOP advice for the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, well, House Minority Leader Whip, I should say House Minority Whip, Steve Scalise, says your world uh, says rather on Tuesday that the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi needs to change your tone and start making credible compromises to avert another government shutdown over border wall funding. Nancy Pelosi said she wouldn't negotiate during the shutdown. Okay, now the shutdown is over for the time being, Scalise says. While she finally starts or will she finally start to be willing to put a dollar amount on the table to say how much she's willing to put together to support securing the border, whether that's a physical wall or some other means or some other semantic change. On Monday, um, Pelosi invited the president to deliver the State of the Union address. That will be on February 5th after refusing to allow him to appear in the House chamber during a partial government shutdown. On Friday, both chambers of Congress passed a short-term spending bill to reopen the government through the 15th of February, but it includes no funding for a border wall. And Venezuela's opposition leader says we're waking up from a nightmare. The opposition leader, uh, Juan Guaido, who is in an exclusive interview, said that he hopes the transition to democracy happens as soon as possible to end the country's last chapter as a socialist state. This is the last chapter of change, the last chapter of a nightmare for many citizens who were forced to migrate, that were forced to leave their country or that um, lost their lives. Um, We are waking up from a nightmare and we're waking up to dream of a a prosperous Venezuela. The 35-year-old is the National Assembly leader who took an oath of office last week before a crowd of anti-government protesters holding their hands up during the symbolic swearing-in in the Venezuelan capital of Caracas. He aims to lead his country to democracy amid massive protests by supporters of the disputed president, Nicolas Maduro, who was sworn in for a second term three weeks ago. And a deadly Arctic deep freeze enveloped the Midwest, forcing widespread closures of schools, offices, prompting the U.S. Postal Service to take the rare step of suspending mail delivery to a wide swath of the region because of the cold. Many normal activities shut down and residents huddled inside as the National Weather Service forecast plunging um, temperatures on Wednesday and Thursday from one of the coldest air masses in years. The bitter cold is the result of a split in the polar vortex, as it's called, that allowed temperatures to plunge much further south than normal. The U.S. Postal Service said it would suspend mail delivery on Wednesday in parts or all of several Midwest uh, states, including North and South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois. The governors of uh, three states, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan, all declared emergencies as the cold settled in. The National Weather Service forecast uh, tonight called for temperatures in Chicago as low as minus 28 with wind chills to minus 50. The agency took to social media to stress how imperative it was to heed cold weather safety. Fortunately, we're not planning on uh, that kind of vortex here. One Democrat's uh, 2020 campaign is in trouble. U.S. Representative Tusley Gabbard, 
The 2020 presidential campaign is already in trouble just days after the Hawaii Democrat formally announced her White House bid, according to a report. The Congresswoman's campaign manager, Raina Beatrice, and consulting firm Revolution Messaging are set to uh, depart, Political reported. Gabbard will rely on her sister to fill the void, the report said. Raina Beatrice, or rather Beatrice, is a longtime advisor and fan and remains so. Uh, the campaign spokeswoman told the news outlet. Um, she said the revolution messaging was hired only for the launch portion of the campaign. In addition to losing Batris, Gabbard is also under fire for a public feud with U.S. Senator Maisie Hirano of uh, Hawaii. She will also have to defend her House seat against State Senator Kai Kahela, a, a Democrat who recently announced his candidacy. And on this day in 1972... Thirteen Roman Catholic civil rights marchers were shot to death by British soldiers in Northern Ireland on what became known as Bloody Sunday. And on this day in 1969, the Beatles staged an impromptu concert atop Apple headquarters in London. It would be the group's last public performance. And on this day in 1933, long pause, Adolf Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Sarah B. Smith. We're going to talk about um, a sort of a sad story that uh, involves her uh, mother who was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. She'll join us in our next segment. Well, at least six deaths have been uh, reported in the U.S. as the deadly polar vortex with frigid Arctic winds slammed the Midwest and headed east on Wednesday. The polar vortex has caused temperatures to drop much farther south than usual, with temperatures in certain areas in the Midwest comparable or below those in Antarctica, where the um, the Arctic Pole Station hits minus 25 degrees. Well, the city of Chicago, where it reached a record-breaking minus 22 degrees around 6 a.m. this morning, saw temperatures still dropping after the National Weather Service reported to a low minus of 19 degrees. Uh, With strong winds, wind chill temperatures reaching a range of minus 45 to minus 55 degrees. Cities like um, Ponsford, Minnesota, Fargo, North Dakota saw wind chill temperatures of minus 66 degrees and minus 31 degrees respectively. A record Arctic air mass will remain over the central and eastern U.S. over the next several days, according to the National Weather Service. Wind chill values of 30 to 60 degrees below zero will be common across the northern plains, Great Lakes, and upper Midwest. And while the cold snap is causing travel disruptions throughout the region, the Midwest isn't the only area of the U.S. experiencing dangerous winter conditions. In Wyoming, Pennsylvania, a uh, reported 27 vehicles were involved in a crash uh, today as a certain uh, areas experience snowy conditions and w- with a warmer 16 degrees, a long stretch of uh, Route 222 uh, along that area saw a pileup around 1.30 p.m. local time. Authorities uh, requested at least um, 15 ambulances as multiple people reported injured. And of course, getting first responders there under these conditions can be pretty tough. A short time later in Buffalo, New York, 21 vehicles, including a tractor trailer, were reportedly involved in a crash in the New York State uh, throughway around 382 miles, uh, that marker. It wasn't immediately clear if anyone was injured in that incident. The cold air will continue to blanket the U.S. from Wednesday into Thursday, and some areas possibly reaching minus 70 degrees, uh, the wind chill overnight. So it's um, 
to call it a polar vortex is certainly not an overstatement. But six deaths reported thus far. Details were not made available uh, regarding the circumstances of those deaths, but it's been very serious. On a lighter note, um, one way to keep morale high, albeit chilly, in Wisconsin is to serve ice cream. A Wisconsin ice cream shop distributed uh, free cones in minus 20 degree temperatures, continuing an 87-year-old tradition. As the polar vortex swept the nation, blanketing large portions of the Midwest in dangerously low temperatures, one ice cream shop in Wisconsin continued a quirky 87-year-old tradition and made life a little sweeter for the local community by giving away free ice cream cones. Now, granted, most people couldn't get there and why they'd want one in the first place. It's a tradition worth continuing. They decided So they served up ice cream cones. Mullins Dairy Bar in uh, Watertown, they've been giving away the free uh, frozen treats when temperatures plummet below 20 degrees Fahrenheit since it was founded back in 1932. The festive winter uh, ritual was created by the founder, Frank Mullen, and his sons soon after uh, they opened the place. Last weekend, they gave away at least 1,250 single-dip ice cream cones as temperatures first dropped to dramatic lows and Arctic winds surged through the region. Today, brothers um, Adam and Josh uh, and uh, Matt Keatman uh, own and operate the ice cream shop as per the business official website and agreed that they too were uh, excited to give away the frozen cones. Uh, their first time doing so last Saturday. The tradition continues under the new management. This is the first time that we've seen the temperatures since my brothers and I took over operation in 2016. So I'm not sure when the last time uh, Watertown saw 20 degrees or minus 20 degrees, managing partner and chef Adam um, said. But rumor has it that the Mullen brothers would make customers eat their free ice cream cones outside. We don't plan on continuing the uh, part of the tradition that says you can eat inside. Uh, What better way for families to celebrate the cold weather than a scoop of ice cream? outside in minus 20 degree temperatures. Not sure I would take them up on that one. Well, the U.S. has turned back its first asylum seeker from southern uh, from the southern border as part of the Trump administration's policy requiring people to wait in Mexico for their case to work their way through the immigration courts. Agency spokeswoman Katie Waldman said the person and this is Homeland Security said the person seeking asylum was turned back to Tijuana as the uh, San uh, Ysidro uh, port of entry in San Diego. The move was a break with longstanding U.S. policy that allows migrants to wait inside the U.S. as their case winds through the immigration courts, a process that can take months or years and often ends with the individual never showing up in court or the issues resolved. Immigration advocates have vowed to challenge that policy in court. And under new leadership in Mexico, they have prepared to... Uh, house these individuals uh, while the process takes place as well. Says, um, well, I won't even bother making that quote, but another complication is Mexico's willingness to accept the migrants, most of them seeking to cross the U.S. border, are from Central American countries and not Mexican citizens. A spokesperson for the Mexico Embassy in Washington says in an email on Tuesday that Mexico um, won't extend the policy beyond a single border crossing, um, Walden disputed that assertion, which was reported earlier by the, um, the um, Associated Press, insisting that the U.S. has the legal authority to roll out the 
uh, policy along the entire U.S.-Mexico border. The Department of Homeland Security has said all along it intends to expand the new policy across the border in an orderly, phased approach based on capacity and in coordination with our Mexican counterparts. Well, Waldman uh, declined to say how fast the Department of Homeland Security plans to implement the policy outside of San Ysidro, um, adding that U.S. officials first wanted to ensure it had the, the proper guidance and training in place before the changes were implemented. We're trying to get it right the first time. So the policy has at least begun at that port of entry along the southern border. Well, the main man in charge of elections in Texas made a surprise announcement last week. As many as 95,000 non-citizens had registered to vote and 58,000 of them may have voted in at least one election between 96 and 2018. The finding announced by Texas Secretary of State David Whitley is serious and almost immediately the news became the subject of sensational statements. Some, such as President Donald Trump, assert that this constitutes proof that 58,000 individuals unlawfully voted in Texas. Activists on the left, meanwhile, dismiss the findings altogether as merely setting the stage for voter purges and disenfranchisement. In this case, neither side is getting it quite right. Well, here's what apparently actually happened. In Texas, individuals, including non-citizens, are required to present documents establishing their residency and identity when obtaining a driver's license or state-issued personal identification card. When a person presents a valid document, such as a green card, indicating he or she is lawfully present but not a U.S. citizen, that record is preserved by the Texas Department of Public Safety. This sort of information can be quite useful for elections officials responsible for maintaining voter rolls. Simply put, the records offer a more reliable reference set than self-reported data since uh, they're derived from verified government documentation. For nearly a year, Whitley's office has worked to compare the state's voter rolls to data from the Department of Public Safety with the goal of flagging people who are registered to vote but who also provide DPS with documentation indicating they are not U.S. citizens. Comparing driver's license information with voting records makes sense, given that, according to the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, the most common source of registration applications during the 2016 election cycle was from vote, uh, motor vehicle uh, agencies. Well, Texas officials sought to leverage that data to flag individuals who may have improperly registered to vote by cross-referencing those records. Well, according to an official state advisory, Texas used some of the strongest possible matching criteria, such as a voter's full name, full social security number, to produce actionable information for voter registrars while producing the least possible impact on eligible voters. Nevertheless, Whitley's office cautioned that the matches should be further investigated and do not automatically trigger cancellation of voter registration. The next step is for county election officials to investigate particular instances of possible unlawful registration and to contact flagged voters by mail. These individuals then would have 30 days to respond to a letter in one of three manners. And they hopefully will resolve those issues at that time. So the possibility exists, but this investigation, at least up to this point, doesn't confirm that voter fraud actually took place in the large numbers that this um, uh, evaluation might suggest. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The next book we're going to talk about is titled Broken Beauty. It's the story of Sarah's mother, my next guest, known as Beauty to her family, 
and her family's journey in navigating the devastating world of early onset Alzheimer's. Sarah was a young woman in her 30s, just finding her own way and in need of a mother as much as ever before when her own mother's illness struck. The family's shock and pain at the disease's manifestations has at times proven unbearable. Not only is Beauty still young and fit, she's also Sarah's best friend. This powerful and personal story about a daughter facing the unthinkable and the love she found to carry her through will touch the hearts of everyone who reads it. It's sobering, it's painful, it's reassuring. Broken Beauty is a personal account, a compelling, God-ordained walk through one family's experiencing loss and dying. And I'm so delighted to have Sarah with us here today. She is a housewife, a mother of three, a lifelong Texan, and a woman of deep faith. Her childhood was anchored by her family's faith and their participation in church activities. A gifted athlete who reached elite status uh, in competitive gymnastics by the age of 13, Sarah was born and raised in Houston uh, in that area and remained there until Um, her departure for the University of Texas in Austin. She writes about her beautiful relationship with her mother, who again was uh, given the diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. This is such a, a difficult subject, and particularly when you look at the numbers of people whose lives have already been impacted, Uh, impacted and the numbers that they project into the future, many of us will face this same scenario, either as caregivers or as those who are given the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Did you begin this uh, this project expecting this was going to be a book for the general public or was this more personal reflection? You know, I thought it would be more of reflection and helping those who are walking alongside Alzheimer's. But as I wrote this book, I realized through the writing that it was for anyone out there who's broken, and we're all broken, and it really just has a much bigger message than I really intended for it. Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned, um, your mother was given the name Beauty, and the title of your book reflects um, the journey that she's on with this early uh, onset, uh, this diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's. Tell us about when you and your family first began to recognize something wasn't quite right and when that diagnosis was given. I recognized something wasn't right uh, when mom was around 60 years old. Uh, she was had a lot of outbursts emotionally. She was angry, uh, different things that she would say and do and react to. But I just thought she was stressed. She had lost her mom and her sister and her brother, and she had also lost her father before that in O2. So she had been through so much trauma. And around 63 is when I noticed a neurological problem where she had some tingling in her arm. And that was a red flag to me that something was going on neurologically. I will admit I had no idea it would be Alzheimer's. I thought perhaps a brain uh, tumor. But we didn't have any family history of Alzheimer's. I've never walked alongside it. I didn't know anything about it. So when she was officially diagnosed in her mid-60s, it really uh, shocked our entire family. Mm. Now, most of us, when we think about Alzheimer's, the most we think about it is there is an acute forgetfulness. But it really is much more than that. It really is. When you look at the brain and all the different functions that it does, it it affects people differently. And for my mom, it was affecting her fine motor skills first, and then it was affecting her speech. 
she couldn't get certain words out and couldn't think of the words. She had them in her mind, but she couldn't speak them. And then she started losing sort of vocabulary or if we would go to the grocery store or to dinner and look at a menu and she would see, for example, tortilla soup. She didn't know what a tortilla was. So those were red flags that you were seeing neurologically of the brain shutting down different functions. Um, and it wasn't necessarily memories as we think about it, mm-hmm. remembering people or childhood and things like that. Mm. You write in the uh, forward to the book, my journey with my mom has been wonderful, painful, terrifying, life-affirming, crazy-making, and beautiful. Now, one would not necessarily expect beautiful to be on that list. And yet, as a woman of faith, you write about that there is an aspect of this journey that has even been beautiful. That's right. Um, This situation has been very strenuous and burdensome. Uh, Some would call it inconvenient. Uh, It's cruel and it's devastating. But I have to say, um, going through writing this book and showing up for my mom and loving on her every day that I can um, has been beneficial and restorative. It began the process of restoring my broken heart years ago it did. And it really brought me out of isolation. I was hiding and I was going through shame and guilt and didn't feel like I was doing enough. I was also trying to take care of my father. But what I have realized walking this journey is you must live in the moment and live to love. I can't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. There's a saying, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, so we live for today. And if I allow for a limitless love to exist, even through this disease, and I grab and hold onto it tight, It blesses me, it blesses her, and it blesses everyone around us. And it's just so important to know, to focus on her and not me. Mm -hmm. It is selfless that we need to um, just be thinking of others and about them and that their life needs to be valued and that they are worthy of our attention no matter the disease. Now, this, of course, has been devastating for your father, Um, being a spouse for many, many years and seeing the love of his life uh, begin to fade, as has been the case. How has he approached living with and caring for his wife under these circumstances? Oh, my goodness. I have just seen my dad blossom in beautiful, beautiful ways. It was absolutely devastating, as you can imagine. Um, He has been through years of heartbreak and pain, um, guilt, Uh, frustration, and probably some bitterness. But what I have seen with my dad is he has given up everything to serve and honor his wife. He has protected her dignity in every way possible. And now my mom is in a memory care facility. My dad is there every single day with her. He's there for about seven to eight hours a day. And he is now helping out with all the other residents and loves on the caregivers there, and I have just seen him come out of a shell. I did not realize my dad would dance with other people. He's just such a quiet, humble man, always has been. And watching him be able to love on her the way he does and then to see how he's blessed in return by her and the other residents, it 
it really, he, he would rather go see residents than go to a football game. There's so mm. many things that he could do, but he just, he doesn't want to do that. He, his life now is to serve her and take care of her, and it is absolutely beautiful and, and a, a wonderful legacy for mm. his children. Yes, in sickness and in health. We never That's imagined great. those words applying to that kind of diagnosis. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you are the mother of three. How challenging is it for you to determine where do I need to be? Where does my focus need to be? How do I divide my time, not neglect my household and my family, mm-hmm. while at the same time not neglect my, my parents? It's been so hard. Um, I, up until she was placed, that was for sure the biggest challenge for me. I wore many, many hats. Mm-hmm. And um, it actually brought me to a place of self-pity and despair and I have some depression. And it wasn't until Dad ended up having to make this decision to place her, which he never thought in a million years yes. that he would. And when she was placed, over time, we both realized not only was she safe, but we, as her caregivers and her loved ones, were able to love on her more and more fully. And I was getting more rest and being able to balance my family time as well. I had a lot of guilt because I never felt like I was doing enough. Mm. I wanted to make sure I was picking up my kids from carpool, but I also wanted some time with my mom. I wanted to give my dad a break but then I wasn't getting time with my dad. I also want to date my husband. We go on date nights. It's challenging, and it does bring you to a place, again, of isolation if you do not um, share your emotions and thoughts with others and let them know what your needs are. It can be a lonely world. Yeah, yeah. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Sarah B. Smith. She is an author and speaker. Her latest book, Broken Beauty, Piecing Together Lives Shattered by Early Onset Alzheimer's. And while this is a difficult subject, she writes about it in such a beautiful way. And in the context of faith, it makes it endurable and Um, and also gives you glimpses of hope and joy and beauty in the midst of a very, very difficult set of of events. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Sarah B. Smith. She's the author of Broken Beauty, Piecing Together Lives Shattered by Early Onset Alzheimer's. I'm the primary caregiver of my mother who has just turned 88. And one of the things she says with some regularity is that she just hopes and prays that she doesn't get Alzheimer's or suffer Mm. dementia. That's her greatest fear in life. Tell us about your mom at the time the diagnosis was given and how she navigated her decline that ultimately led to her moving to a different facility, a different home, if you will. It was really hard. My mom has always been a very strong-willed and stubborn woman, (laughs) and it has been great. It was filtered and channeled in a beautiful way. She led Bible studies in her church and was very involved with her church community and women's prison ministry, but she was very independent. She would not uh, let anyone help her. So when she was diagnosed um, with this, she, first of all, was in complete denial. She did, um, you know, try to say that the doctor didn't know what he was talking about, and he was young, and she's fine, and she had 
an incredible gift at downplaying it and making us believe she really was fine. And over the few years in Houston, while they were still there, we obviously saw the disease progressing. And I believe that as she did not know what the disease was over time, that in some strange way she's able to, it's almost like the power of the mind, to um, convince herself she's okay, but even though she thinks there's something wrong. And this caused a lot of anxiety in her. Mm-hmm. She was very irritable. She got angry. We certainly had moments of some physical violence. And she refused medication. And my dad supported the refusal of medication because they both just didn't want to do that. But it wasn't until my dad finally um, moved to Dallas because all of her immediate family had been deceased. They moved to Dallas, and he realized he wanted to be closer to family. And when we saw a doctor here, she convinced him to get on medication. And I am telling you, he would say today that that was the biggest um, mountain for him that was moved and helped him to take care of her because it leveled out her emotions. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to take care of her and be in a better place mentally himself. And over time with the medicine, it it would calm her down, but then she would go through phases where the anxiety would happen again and she couldn't sit still. And that's when she would go out the front door or do things that we were not aware of or we would find later, and and we had to up some medication. So um, it was really challenging because she had always been strong-willed with this disease, it it multiplied, and it was very hard to have a caregiver in the home with her. We tried so many, and she would set their purse outside the front door. She, uh, We tried to say that we needed a, someone to stay with them, that there's a missionary or something with the church, since that was her gift, and she loved to entertain and serve, and nothing would work, and she was just so stubborn and did not want anyone And in turn, she attached to my dad and could not leave his side, and he could not leave her side. And it just really became very burdensome and exhausting. Mm -hmm. At what point was it clear that she needed to be moved from her home to where she is being cared for now? We had several instances happen over over probably a four- to six-month period And I would say the last incident that happened, my mom had been in her bathroom and my dad was uh, in the kitchen. And I get a phone call here at my house and he's panicking because she had done, drank something that caused a red rash from head to toe all over her body. She was shaking. It looked like she had scolded her skin. Mm -hmm. I ran over there thinking we were going to call 911 and... Um, she couldn't tell us what she did. We were, she, all we knew is that she was in her restroom. So I checked to see if the glass was steaming. Maybe she took a hot shower. It was too hot and it scolded her skin. I, I couldn't, could not figure out what she had done. Well, after um, kind of researching and talking to her, I also had a strong whiff of nail polish remover. Oh. And come to find out, she had taken a drink out of her nail polish remover thinking it was her diet coke. 
So that was a um, huge scare for my father. I just will never forget him sitting in a chair in their bedroom, and she was in his lap. And at this point, everything had kind of calmed down, and the rash was actually going away. He had tears in his eyes. But my mom was kind of laughing and saying, I don't know why y'all are so worried. I'm fine. Everything's fine. See, I'm fine. And I realized, and he realized at that moment, that no matter what he did, however he, he tried so hard to, quote, unquote, childproof the house and take away sharp items and turn the gas stove off and the gas fireplace off, anything he did, there was always something else she got into. And I think it was he could not do it anymore. Yeah. It crushed his heart. Yeah. And he really just, he didn't have a choice. And he knew if he was, if she was going to need to be safe, it was going to have to be in a memory care facility. And he was honestly aging so quickly. I mean, I noticed he just physically was wiped out. He really aged within two or three months in my eyes and in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and the way he has approached her being away from home by spending that much time with her mm-hmm. seems like and one of the things that I've just prayed, Lord, just let me keep my mom at home until you call her home. That may not be possible, but it is possible to spend that kind of quality time without the exhaustion of of uh, being the primary caregiver when that is necessary. It is. And, you know, you're saying about things being possible. God makes the impossible become possible, Mm -hmm. and he is faithful. And my dad, you mentioned earlier, through sickness and in health, that was something my dad could not get over. He felt like if he placed her, he was breaking his vow with her. But what he would tell you now is that he is taking better care of her because she's safe. And even though she's sick and, you know, and has this disease that's incurable and, I guess, terminal on the earthly side of things, um, she, you know, he just feels strongly that he's committed to her and they're still married and he will celebrate her and their marriage and their life and dance with her until the good Lord takes her. And I'm so, so proud of him. He is such a great example to all men and women out there who are facing uh, just very difficult decisions. And he is the example of how God makes the impossible become impossible. God yes. has been faithful. Yes. Well, let, let me ask you about where God is in all of this. I mean, some would assume if, if you get a diagnosis like this, that somehow God has abandoned you. And yet what I'm hearing you say, and what I know to be true as a follower of Jesus, that in the midst of this very difficult circumstance, he is present and he's at work. How would you describe um, how God is ministering to you, your family, and even your mother under these um, very long and difficult circumstances? I have been ministered to beyond measure. We have <clears throat> taken our children up there with their friends. Our children attend a classical Christian school. And I'll never forget the first time we took um, some girls up there, a group of girls, they do a Grandparents' Day program where they recite scripture and do poetry, and they were doing the Lord's Prayer in sign language. We took them to the memory care facility, and that was the first day that I saw, wow, this is an incredible ministry opportunity that I did not even know existed. And it blessed everyone. And from that point on, 
we've made such an effort to go up there for Christmas, for Easter, for Valentine's, and Thanksgiving, and just get our kids involved and their friends involved. And what has been so beautiful is to see the parents wanting to come up there. I'm getting messages of people saying, how can I serve? Can, I, can we bring cookies who don't even know my mom? Mm. And really, it is a ministry opportunity. I think that we do focus a lot on serving uh, in assisted living, and I would love to see people show up in the memory care, on the memory care floor. It is a little scary, but if we face our fears and we overcome those and we have more courage, the love that shows up is incredible. And I've seen the Holy Spirit work through my mom up there. I've seen her go and try to pray over someone who's not having a very good day, and she can't speak well, but when she can say the word God or Jesus or pray and touch their hand, I am telling you, Mm. within seconds, there is a peace that comes over that resident and my mother and all of us around her. So there's no doubt that God is working in and through the situation, which is why (laughs) this title to me is so amazing broken beauty because there is beauty in the brokenness and if we will just be willing to see it and look for it and and grasp onto that and embrace it it will be a blessing well i want to thank you for the book it's certainly been an encouragement to me as i anticipate the future and i'm grateful for the pictures as well i just fell in love with your mom as i I was able to see her face and i thank you so much for being with us today Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that you did this. I appreciate it. God bless. Bye-bye. <laughs> Again, the book is titled Broken Beauty. Sarah B. Smith is the author, and the book is published by Greenleaf. Definitely worth a good read. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Uh, Later this hour, we're going to talk with Jennifer Hartline. She is a Virginia resident. She is a mom and she writes for The Stream. She has the latest on that terrible abortion law that Virginia is poised to pass. My understanding is they have tabled it since we first scheduled our conversation, but it reflects what's being discussed in state houses across the country. We'll talk with Jennifer Hartline about that when she joins us in our next segment. Well, the Vancouver area measles outbreak grew again uh, with one more confirmed case. The number of people with suspected cases continued to be high. On Tuesday, it was 12, an indication that the rate of spread is still high. I mean, relatively, 12 is a small number compared to the population, but you get the idea. The suspected cases number is determined by how many people have symptoms that match measles, but their blood hasn't yet been tested the bar that local and state government officials use to measure the spread of that disease. Clark County has reported 36 cases of measles, two more attributed to Hawaii, where Washington children who were on vacation there. One person with measles in Multnomah County has also been linked to the Clark County outbreak, and a second Oregon person in Deschutes County is suspected of having measles as well. Clark County Public Health Officer Alan Melnick said that um, uh, his office has... I just had to stop and sneeze. I don't think that's ever happened in all the years that I've been on the air. I had to sneeze. 
But as a broadcast professional, I'll just move on as if nothing happened. Anyway, um, Clark County Public Health Officer Alan Melnick said his office has only started to analyze the cases to try to pinpoint an origin for that outbreak. He said he can't uh, say how the outbreak started or ended up in Clark County and that in some outbreaks that uh, that's never known. But he did confirm that the cases so far are widespread and the infection region is uh, expected to grow. Um, where you might have been exposed, well, they have a list of places. Infectious people were at Costco, the airport. I was at the airport, and I wonder, you know, I'm feeling a little achy. Do I have the measles? I don't remember if I've had them before. I think I had mumps. I don't recall. Uh, a Blazers game, other sites, and uh, they've now added church to that list, of uh, places where the outbreaks have been uh, traced. The majority of the confirmed measles cases are children where... Um, rather, who are 10 years old or younger. Only one case has been an adult. Nearly all of the people who contracted measles were not vaccinated. The remaining four are not sure if they were vaccinated. The measles vaccine is 97% effective, can reduce the risk of infection if gotten within 72 hours after exposure to the virus. The highly contagious virus spreads through the air, can linger for up to two hours in an isolated space. People who have never received a measles vaccine are susceptible to that disease, which can be deadly under some narrow circumstances. Vancouver area measles, um, uh, the outbreak here, some of the things that public health officials uh, say uh, in both Oregon and Washington, they've advertised a long list of places where people might have been exposed to the virus. On Tuesday, Clark County Public Health announced a battleground Washington church to that list, Word of Grace Church uh, in Battleground. Uh, To further limit the spread of the virus, health officials ask people who think they might have measles, call their doctor or health provider. They're saying don't visit the hospital or the doctor's office because they don't want to spread the contagion. Low vaccination rates made uh, the outbreak inevitable. They're also saying the misinformation that has fueled the decline in vaccination rates, and there's some debate about that, largely born from a debunked assertion that vaccines cause autism seems to be as contagious as measles itself. Uh, the officials are saying Washington State Department of Health uh, keeps track of residents' immunization status so people can see if they have or need the shot. Clark County Public Health is also maintaining a daily call center for questions about the outbreak uh, at their local number. Again, that's Clark County Public Health. So the uh, concern continues. The num- numbers are relatively low, but this is highly contagious. So uh, be aware. Well, a group of Israeli scientists say a cure for cancer is within reach, even optimistically predicting that it will be found within a year. But at least one expert here in the U.S. questioned the potential cure's legitimacy and said it's more likely just another claim on a list of irresponsible and ultimately cruel false promises for cancer patients. Well, the company Accelerated Evolution Biotechnologies Limited uh, has described its treatment uh, mutato, M-U-T-A-T-O, as comparable to a cancer antibiotic that uses a multi-prolonged approach to sim- that is similar, rather, to treatment given to HIV patients. The Israeli team told the Jerusalem Post that this treatment uh, relies on a combination of several uh, peptides for each cancer cell, reportedly eliminating the chances for um, chances of rather evasion through mutation. Um, the uh, company's CEO uh, said that Mutata or Mutato or whatever it's called, tic tac toe, also works uh, to target cancer stem cells, eliminating the chances of recurrence. 
Um, they also are claiming that it will be effective from day one and cause no or minimal side effects at a much lower cost than most other treatments. Our solution will be both generic and personal. Uh, but Dr. Ben Nell, who's the director of uh, Cancer Center in New York or at New York University, uh, is skeptical, saying that uh, via email, of course, curing cancer is the goal of everyone who comes to work every day at a cancer center. And if this company does, in fact, cure cancer, uh, this will have uh, my con- they will have my congratulations and thanks. But cancer is multiple diseases, and it is highly unlikely that this company has found a cure for cancer any more than uh, there is a single cure for infections. Well, the treatment has not been tested in humans yet, although... Uh, the uh, Israeli doctor said it has uh, shown success in mice and is nearing the clinical trial stage. Um, he went on to say more likely that this uh, claim is yet another in a long line of, of spurious, irresponsible and ultimately cruel false promises for cancer patients. That's the U.S. doctor in response uh, to it all. Again, there are skeptics and these um, Israeli uh, doctors at a cancer clinic. They are saying that they have found and will likely um, release a cancer for a cure for cancer rather within a year. Again, that's a very tall order. Well, more than a year after the bureau began digging into the slaughter of 58 people and the wounding of scores of others um, at a Los Angeles County or a Las Vegas County concert, uh, the FBI said on Tuesday that it hadn't conducted anything more about or, or learned anything more about. Stephen Paddock's mysterious motive for the attack than it had the day after the shooting stopped. Well, the FBI's uh, conclusions on the mass murder, which Paddock undertook from a sniper's perch in the uh, Mandalay Resort and Casino in October of 2017, were unveiled on Tuesday by the Associated Press. The attack at the Route 91 Harvest Festival was the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. Well, most of what the FBI concluded has long been known. Paddock acted alone when he planned and carried out the attack. Aaron Roos, the special agent in charge of the FBI's Las Vegas office, said the 64-year-old fatally shot himself as police arrived in the hotel suite. Uh, But the reason for Paddock's rampage, the FBI says nearly 18 months of study and analysis by agents and behavior specialists couldn't uncover it. It wasn't about MGM, Mandalay Bay, or a specific casino or venue, Rouse said. It was all about doing the maximum amount of damage and him obtaining some form of infamy. Well, Las Vegas police closed their investigation in August, also without establishing a motive. Well, Paddock was a retired postal worker. Uh, accountant and real estate investor who owned rental properties and homes in Reno, Nevada, and in a retirement community uh, more uh, than an hour's drive from Las Vegas. He also held a pilot's license and uh, liked to gamble tens of thousands of dollars at a time. Again, it's still unclear what his motives might have been. Police characterized him as a loner who had no uh, religious or political affiliations, despite reports that he had ranted about the Federal Emergency Management Agency camps set up by, um, or rather after, Hurricane Katrina and uh, deadly standoffs between law enforcement officers and militia groups in Waco. Coming up, we're going to talk with Jennifer Hartline. She is a writer for The Stream. She'll talk about, she's also a resident in Virginia. We'll talk about the uh, terrible abortion law that the Virginia legislature was poised to pass that may have changed. We'll talk with her and get an update. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you haven't yet heard, in Virginia, they're poised to pass a piece of legislation that makes the, uh, uh, the law passed in uh, New York seem, well, feeble. My next guest writes for the stream, and she points out that in Virginia, they're poised to pass their own abortion legislation that may be worse than what we saw in New York. It was introduced by Democrat Kathy Tran. The Repeal Act, as it's known, would wipe out all existing restrictions on abortions in Virginia. According to Tran, her bill would allow for a woman at full term in labor to still have an abortion if the doctor deemed it necessary for her mental or physical health. We could certainly challenge the notion of a woman full term in labor of uh, having uh, to have a, an abortion as medically necessary. But here to talk with us more about that is uh, the streams, Jennifer Hartland. She is a mother and a Virginia resident, and she brings the latest on the terrible abortion law that Virginia is poised to pass. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Well, before we um, move forward, let me ask you uh, uh, what the status is on this legislation. I'd heard earlier that it might be tabled in committee. Yes, um, that is good news. If that's in fact true, then we should be very thankful. Uh, Live Action reported much earlier in the day today, around 1 o'clock, I believe, um, that this bill has been effectively tabled. Uh, Hopefully it's just been killed and we'll never see the light of day again. But for now, it, it seems, from what I know, it seems to have been tabled and live action was told that it's not going to make it out of subcommittee. Um, so that's, that is good news. I hope that's true, and I hope it stays. Uh, <laughs> I hope this bill never sees the light yeah, of day. It doesn't rise again. Well, let's, let's yes. talk about the fact that this was introduced at all, that it gained some traction. The governor even exactly. made some statements that... Uh, were were puzzling if you consider the governor of they a, were horrifying. <laughs> a reasonable person. Let's talk about what this Virginia legislation would have done or would do if, in fact, it is resurrected. Yeah, so um, it was called the Repeal Act. So basically what it was going to do, um, and if you, I, I, I can have in front of me here the Virginia law as it stands, and then uh, notice the changes that it was going to make. So what it wanted to do was eliminate, first of all, every existing protection for the baby if the baby had the nerve not to die in the first attempt on its life. Um, The law as it stands requires other physicians to be there, um, and they want to, you know, let's let's get rid of that. the law also requires, at this, at this point, it requires the physician and two consulting physicians to all certify and enter in the woman's record that in their medical opinion, based on their best clinical judgment, the continuation of the pregnancy is likely to result in the death of the woman or substantially and irredeemably impair her physical or mental health. So that's the law as it stands. What the Repeal Act wants to do is get rid of the requirement for two other consulting physicians to certify, um, and it wants to eliminate, it, it wants to erase from the language those words substantially and irredeemably 
impair her physical or mental health. So it's basically just if she says, this is going to be bad for my health, it's bad for my mental health, my physical health, my emotional health, whatever. It doesn't have to be substantially anymore, just any threat to the woman's health. That's what the law uh, wanted. That's how it wanted to change the law. Now, my understanding was it, it would lift any restrictions on abortion right up until the moment of, of birth. Would it only be in cases yeah. where the physician uh, deemed it in the, the mother's best interest, either physical no. or mental, but under any no. circumstance? Right. Yes. That's, that's the point of this law. And, that, and we're seeing you know, other states that are sort of following suit after what New York has done. And New York's not the only one. See, people think that, you know, what, ha- what just happened in New York last week is new or that it's uh, drastically extreme compared to other states, but that, that's the point. It's really not. It's really not. Uh, late-term abortion at this moment is legal in all 50 states in the country, and it has been ever since Doe versus Bolton in 1973. It has been legal. It is legal in all 50 states. Now, there may be some variation of limitation on that, but the fact is it's legal in every state in the country right now. Um, In the column that you wrote for the stream, you quote some uh, OBGYNs and NICU NICU nurses Mm -hmm. who've come forward to educate Americans on um, the necessity of an abortion, late term in particular, uh, for reasons of the life or health of the mother. And you quote Omar Hamada for one and others who suggest that there is never a physical or uh, mental or health reason on which an abortion is necessary in the third trimester to save the life or the health of the mother. Right. We're hearing that a lot. People need to realize that Um, they're using that as a great selling point for the for the need for these laws are saying, no, this is to protect women because it could be necessary to save her life or in the case of an emergency, this might be needed and you don't want to put these limitations on abortion because it might be necessary to save a woman's life. Um, And people need to realize that is an absolute lie. That is an absolute lie. It is never, I repeat, never, ever, ever medically necessary to kill the child in the womb in order to save the mother's life. It is never, never, never necessary. That's a lie. There may be instances where mom is having a true medical emergency of certain kinds, and the solution is to deliver the baby, is to go ahead and deliver the baby, even if that's early. But what what has to it is never necessary to kill the baby before delivery in order to save the mother's life that's a lie and you know doctors OBGYNs neonatologists NICU nurses all sorts of specialists are coming out and saying that is not true there is no such thing as a medical necessity to kill the baby before delivery in order to save the mother's life that's just not true now, we're grateful that this um, this bill seems to have been tabled, but the fact that it was introduced yeah. at all, the fact that it was being discussed with a straight face and proposed as something that was yeah. in the best interest of women should be yeah. shocking enough. Is this the trend that we can expect moving forward? I think it is. I think we're seeing this already. That's the point. And, you know, and for like we were talking about the governor of Virginia 
to to say on the radio this morning. He was actually what we, what he was actually talking about was infanticide, pure yes. and simple. He was talking about an example of the baby who survived an abortion being delivered, and then you know there would be a discussion. If if it's what the mom wanted, then they could try to resuscitate the baby if it's what she wanted, and you know the doctors would, would debate this and discuss it. So he's literally talking about a child being delivered and the adults in the room debating whether or not that baby gets to live or if somebody's going to go over and, 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 and what kill it? How does it matter? I mean, the, the thing is we're talking about Kermit Gosnell all over again, over and over and over again, but this time it's going to be right out in the open. They're encouraging the kinds of things that Kermit Gosnell did because what, What's what's to stop anyone now? If if they're going to if they're going to say in these legislations in these laws that a, abortion is legal to the moment of birth, what or who is going to stop someone from doing exactly what Kermit Gosnell did? And especially since you've got the governor of Virginia right there on the radio talking about, oh well, you know, we'll discuss it. The, the mom and the doctor can discuss whether or not the baby's going to be resuscitated. Yeah, just incredible. In addition well, to that, we're talking about out and out infanticide. Yeah, absolutely. Here. In addition to that, there were also uh, there was removal of protections in terms of the facility that these kinds of procedures could be performed yes. in, under what conditions, the safety standards, and so exactly. on, all lowered. And how, as you point out in your column, this is in the how best interest possibly, of women. Yeah, how can this be good for women? I mean, why why are women suddenly not worthy of a facility that's up to a high standard of cleanliness? And uh, the appropriate qualified medical people there too. I mean, women don't deserve a doctor anymore. It can just be, you know, anybody there doing the abortion, a nurse, maybe some sort of tech, who knows? I mean, and, and the clinics that they, they want to allow this to happen in, they, they should not be held to a high standard of of cleanliness and hygiene and equipment should not be held to a high standard of functioning. How is this good for women to lower the standard of care in every measurable way? I don't understand how we can be celebrating this as a win for women. Yeah, well, this, this kind of wickedness encouraging. is inscrutable. Well, we're out of yeah, time. It's, it's encouraging Gosnell all over again. Uh, absolutely. Nor- mainstreaming Gosnell. I appreciate yep. so much your writing on the subject, taking the time to talk with us today, and we'll continue to follow this story to make sure the bill remains as it is, tabled at this moment. Amen. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Again, Jennifer Hartline, she's a mother and a Virginia resident. She writes for The Stream. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, if that last segment didn't get you exercised enough, here's another one that will give you something to think about, pray about, and prepare for. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has introduced what she's calling the Equality Act, but it could lead to more parents losing custody of their kids when those children want gender transition. Now, it's important to point out that we don't really know what uh, the drugs and the surgeries that are applied to children, what the long-term impact will be. So there's legitimate reason for parents to be concerned. But uh, as you probably recall, Americans have long understood that children are best cared for by their parents. That's been a generally accepted idea until most recently. The state can only intervene in the family when there's a demonstrable uh, or a demonstrable um, bit of evidence of abuse or neglect. That all seemed to make sense. 
Uh, this has long been established in our laws, but now um, transgender ideology is silencing doctors and challenging the way courts define parental abuse and neglect. Well, last year in Ohio, a judge removed a biological girl from her parents' custody after they declined to help her transition to male with testosterone supplements. Now, the Cincinnati Children's Gender Clinic recommended these treatments for gender dysphoria, the condition of being distressed with one's biological sex. Now, when the parents wanted to treat her with counseling instead, the county prosecutor charged them with abuse and neglect. While transgender activists and pro-trans doctors compare their decision to deny treatment for asthma or even cancer patients. Now, with asthma, there's a... Uh, uh, disease or uh, with cancer, there's a disease. We're not talking about a disease. It's a preference. And the parents wanted to treat it in one way or at least um, address the notion that uh, perhaps counseling could help clarify the confusion in their uh, their daughter. Well, that all happened without federal legislation. But now one of the House uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's top legislative priorities is the Equality Act, and it could give the transgender community a vice grip over the medical profession. It could open the floodgates for lawsuits against doctors who don't fall in line with the transgender ideology as well. Now, politicizing the medical treatment of gender dysphoria could lead to more prosecutions against parents who refuse to aid in the sterilization of their children. As more doctors recommend that children take puberty blockers at age 11 cross sex hormones at 16 and undergo sex reassignment surgeries at 18 parents who resist could face charges of child abuse and lose custody of their children now the tragedy in ohio could be repeated in families across america and again uh, seeking counseling for that uh, that child and we're talking about a child uh, was considered um, tantamount to abuse and neglect Now, the transgender movement wants to dominate the field of medicine, and to do so, it's threatening doctors and hospitals with penalties. Now, some states have already passed laws similar to Pelosi's Equality Act. In New Jersey and in California, transgender activists have sued Catholic hospitals for discrimination on the basis of gender identity because they won't perform sex change surgeries for patients with gender dysphoria. Now, those lawsuits may seem preposterous, but they were enabled by state anti-discrimination laws that treat sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes and healthcare facilities as public accommodations. The text of the Equality Act that was uh, introduced in the 115th Congress does the same. Now, Pelosi's bill would add sexual orientation and gender identity to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, making hospitals and doctors across America vulnerable to costly litigation if they don't follow the medical recommendations of the transgender movement. It doesn't matter if the doctor may have a medical reason for deciding this is not in the best interest of the patient. That does not matter. Uh, It would turn anti-discrimination law, which was meant to protect disenfranchised minority groups, into a coercive sword to threaten doctors into submission to transgender ideology. Now, part of the reason some doctors resist transgender ideology is that it is incompatible with good medicine and would harm rather than help their patient. The American Psychological Association Manual on Mental Disorders classifies gender dysphoria as a mental illness. Now, research shows that 75 to 95 percent of children with gender dysphoria who go through puberty without any transgender treatment actually become comfortable with their bodies. But the transgender movement ignores these statistics, aggressively pushing for gender dysphoric children to be treated with a non-FDA approved uses of uh, drugs, even though side effects can include loss of bone density, decline 
in cognitive ability and infertility. Dr. Michelle Cretella, executive director of the American College of Pediatricians, describes it as institutionalized child abuse. Now, these are medical professionals. Now, transgender activists have already tried to silence doctors who warned patients about these dangers. The Human Rights Campaign, a leading LGBT group, devotes an entire website to trying to discredit Dr. Paul McHugh, the former lead psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University Hospital, who put a stop to the hospital's sex reassignment surgeries. McHugh says the surgeries were fundamentally cooperating with a mental illness. Now, transgender activists and pro-trans physicians often try to uh, exclude parents from the process of medical decision-making. Cincinnati's Children's Hospital Transgender Health Clinic says parents may be excluded from interviews because they might make their children feel uncomfortable asking questions. Well, remarkably, this clinic was deemed 100 percent of the patients seeking care to be appropriate candidates for continued gender treatment. Even the Ohio judge who terminated one couple's parental rights expressed concern at this astoundingly high approval rate. Transgender advocates, they dismiss these concerns by sounding an alarm that transgender or rather gender dysphoric children will be uh, at higher risk of suicide if they don't receive hormone treatment. But the evidence suggests that transgender treatments can automatically increase the likelihood of just that, suicide. A study in Sweden on adults who underwent sex reassignment surgery showed that they were 19 times more likely than the general population to commit suicide after undergoing the operations, which is no panacea. This is particularly noteworthy because in Sweden, cultural support for those who identify as as transgender is very strong. So social stigma is less likely to account for the suicides. And we're talking about minors, adults. They can do whatever they please, whether or not it's in their best interest. uh, That's on them. But when adults are talking about the care of their children, this seems to be a very... A serious breach of protocol. We should be particularly cautious with experimental treatments on children because the long-term effects of transgender treatments have yet to be seen. Even the Centers for Medicine and uh, Medicare and Medicaid under the Obama administration pointed out that mortality from this patient population did not become apparent until after 10 years. Endocrinologist Dr. Michael Laidlaw also warns that the long-term harms to children may not show up until years later when, as young adults, they start asking, how come I can't have children at this point? Well, it's because their fertility was destroyed by some combination of puberty blockers, wrong sex hormones, and surgery. Well, Dr. Stephen Levine, professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, asked the pertinent question, are children really capable of comprehending the way that hormone treatments will alter their lives and render them unable to have their own children? There's a reason we have informed consent laws to protect people like children from being taken advantage of. Well, in this cultural culture, Cultural and political climate, rather, doctors and courts are more and more likely to seek to exclude parents from these life-changing decisions about their children. America's seen an explosion in gender clinics and diagnoses of gender dysphoria in just the past few years. In 2013, America had only three gender clinics. Today, there are more than 41. The clinics report 400 percent increases in children and teens identifying as trans. The Equality Act would expedite this uh, trend by giving the transgender movement a powerful legal weapon to drive medical consensus that could undermine the rights of parents. As more parents wrestle with finding the most loving and helpful solution for their children struggling with gender dysphoria, 
the government should support them. That's what we've seen in the past, but that is not likely going to be what we see in the future, rather undermining their parental authority and what they can perceive as in the best interest of the child being disregarded. Parents have to remain central to the decision-making process when it comes to the medical care of their children suffering from gender dysphoria, but we sadly are heading in the exact opposite direction. We're going to continue to follow this trend and the piece of legislation introduced by Nancy Pelosi in the House, the Equality Act, as it is currently called. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we're going to let you know what Oregon lawmakers are considering. In fact, uh, just a reminder that the Oregon legislature is in session. So keep your uh, uh, your ears open and your eyes open to see what sort of mischief they may be up to. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Kent Anon. The book is titled, You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God Loved Us First. So what do we do when we have immigrants and refugees in our communities, in our neighborhoods? Uh, how do we respond? Now, there are political discussions that are going on about what's appropriate for the country in terms of the, its laws, but how do we as individual followers of Christ, how do we deal with individuals? And we're going to talk about that with Kent Anon when he joins me here tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the Oregon legislature is in session, so hold on to your wallets. Uh, but some Oregon lawmakers are trying to make the proposed cap-and-trade legislation less bad, even before it's introduced. They don't want the bill to hurt the poor, so the cap-and-trade bill is expected to raise utility rates. So those who um, heat their homes and use lights and so on would have to pay more as a means of redistributing wealth in the state of Oregon. The legislature will then take that money raised and spend it on projects to make Oregon more green. But low-income people could be hit harder by the uh, jacked-up rate as they're proposing. Well, enter House Bill 2242. It would set up um, uh, a way for the uh, low-income residents of Oregon to get a discount on their gas and electric bill. That also means, of course, that other customers would end up paying more. Utility bills would be transformed into a way to redistribute income. You know, is that what Oregonians want? Is that what you want? If so, shouldn't similar discounts be enforced for property taxes and also fees charged by the state? There's nothing in the bill to do that. Well, programs already exist to help low-income consumers pay their bills or better insulate their homes. House Bill 2242 would eventually change the rate at which people are charged. It wouldn't be based on your consumption. It would be based on, well, your... Um, your income, for example, and that money that goes above and beyond what you're actually using in terms of utilities would be redistributed to make Oregon more green. And the uh, the legislature and others would determine how to uh, to carry that out. Well, the state's Public Utility Commission doesn't have the authority today to set utility rates based on income differences. Households all essentially pay the same rate. If the bill becomes law, however, the PUC isn't granted the authority to change that yet. Um, it's directed to establish a process to set up a low-income electricity rate or a multifamily rate for a utility. The PUC would then send a report to the legislature, who then would determine how much you and your family would be charged. The bill does create a low-income environmental justice advocate committee. That person or persons, um, unelected, appointed, uh, could intervene and testify as an interested party in rate-setting decisions before the PUC. Environmental justice is not defined in the bill, which would seem like an important oversight, or um, is it anything the advocate decides 
decides uh, that it should be. That's still an unanswered question. Well, if the Public Utility Commission is going to start redistributing income, there's um, one more thing that needs to change at the peak. Well, I'd say far more than one more thing, but just one more to consider at this juncture. The members of the commission need to be elected by Oregonians, which they currently are not. They're unelected bureaucrats. They should not be appointed and dismissed at the will of the governor. Uh, in other words, you could manipulate the makeup of the committee to accomplish a particular goal that reflects the priorities of the governor, but may not reflect the interests of Oregonians. So something to, uh, to keep in mind, uh, lawmakers want to redistribute the wealth in the state of Oregon through your power bill. And so uh, if you're trying uh, to um, release the rates, if you're trying to uh, be frugal with how you use your um, your utilities that may not make much difference in terms of the rates that you will pay. Uh, so that's something to keep an eye on in the Oregon legislature. We're also looking at this uh, uh, legislation that uh, has been or will be introduced that would require the state of Oregon gain access to your home when a child is born for a period of time and for a number of visits. Uh, that would be mandatory and required. It wouldn't be based on anything other than the state of Oregon believes that they would do a better job of determining the future of your child than you could. Uh, there wouldn't have to be any indication that there might be a problem. There wouldn't have to be a history of uh, mishandling child care or child rearing. It would just simply be uh, the presumption on the part of the state that you really need to be looked in on by the state to determine your fitness as a parent and how your child is uh, thriving or failing to thrive and developing. So we'll keep an eye uh, focused on that as well. Now, once again, we're going to talk with Kent Anon. Um, he's the author of You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God Loved Us First. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. And then on Friday, um, we're going to lighten up and enjoy some uh, time looking at the lighter side of the news, which I don't know about you, but I always enjoy because there are such serious matters and they will continue to be serious matters uh, through the course of the week. We'll return to them on Monday, but try to uh, lighten up just a bit on Friday as we make our way into the weekend. So uh, hope you'll join us for that. All right. Well, we are um, just about out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.